Uh, hey, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in this morning. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we are uh, super excited, Lord, to, to be able to spend some time uh, in your word today. Uh, Lord, you give us your word, and your word is, is, is the, the guidance. It's the truth. It's, it's real truth in, in, a, in a time in our culture where everything claims to be right. It's this way. It's that way. It's you do you. You come up with your own truth. You do it your way. But Jesus, what you line out for us in your word is a new way a way to do life the way that you would want us to do life, the with God life. And so today, Lord, as we press more and more into this, uh, I pray that, that you would um, wake us up, uh, Father, that we would see that there is a new way of doing things and that there is a new way of living and that that way of living requires us to engage in that. Uh, it's not passive, it's active. Uh, it's not a spectator sport, we get involved. It's not a solo act, it's a team sport. Uh, so, Jesus, today I pray that you knit us together. I pray that we walk out of this place uh, after opening your word, after spending a little bit of time with you. And it's not like just a normal church service on a Sunday, but we walk out going, something's different. And that difference is we bumped into you because we can't bump into you and stay the same. Uh, so, Jesus, I pray for our time as we dive into your truth. I pray uh, for our time as we study your word, uh, that you would teach us, that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes and ears to what you want for us. We love you. I pray all this in your name. Everybody said Amen. All right, so we are in week four. This is week four of our values and priorities series, and we've been calling it Do the Work. And every week I've shared this quote, and I hope it's kind of starting to sink in. The quote is this, your life is set up perfectly to get the results that you're currently giving. This is an old quote, uh, but this is, this is kind of one of those things when, when we ask the question or when someone asks you the question, like, how's your life currently working out? How are things? And usually what happens is we answer, we answer, we have kind of some canned responses, right? Normally it's like, yeah, we're good. You know, or what I hear most often now is we're busy. I also say that most often. Like, how are you? Well, you know, life's just really busy. But when we stop and think about the truth behind that answer of how's life currently going for you, really this is it. Your life is set up perfectly to get the results that you're currently getting. Whatever the answer is to that question your life is set up perfectly to achieve that result. So if you're stressed out, if you're angry, if you're exhausted, if you're frustrated, if you're sad, if you're lonely, all of those things, right? There's an element in our lives where it's set up perfectly to achieve those results. And so kind of the way we've been, we've been unpacking this as it relates to values and priorities is this. Whatever you're experiencing in your life right now is the result of either how you've chosen to set up and arrange your values and priorities, or how you have, you've allowed them to be compromised or influenced by someone or something else. So when it comes to answering that question, right, like, how's, it, how's life currently working out for me? Really, at the end of the day, it's this. It's, it's, it's either the choices we've made to arrange our values and priorities, right, that's leading us to the, whatever that result is, or where we've allowed our, our values and priorities to be compromised by someone or something else. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your work, maybe it's school. But here's the deal. Our values and our priorities, they're not immune to the effects of the pressure that comes from life, right, in the world around us. Our values and priorities are subject to that. Just like we are subject to the pressure that comes from life, our values and priorities, which go with us, which reside inside of us, right, like those things are also subject to the stress and pressure and the effects of everyday life. So when life gets stressful, what happens is this. We start to question our values. We start to kind of give ground, we start to chase things and pursue things that we know, you know, it's like, I know that's really not worth it, but maybe it'll make me feel a little bit better for a short amount of time. We start to pursue and chase things that, you know what, maybe it'd be easier if I just lowered my standards a little bit. 
I didn't hope for, if I didn't pursue, if I didn't, didn't value something like this, maybe it would just be better if I lowered my standards. If I settled, maybe life would be easier. We start to question those values. When life gets chaotic, right, we allow non-important things to kind of invade and take over these top spaces in our priorities, right? So our values are the things that we would say it's worth it to live this way. Our priorities are the things that say this is what's important and how we build our lives around what's important, right? So when life gets chaotic, we allow kind of top-level things. We allow things to invade those top levels of our priorities. We give top-level time, effort, energy, presence, finances to things that are really bottom-level important. We let things that shouldn't be that important in our lives begin to, to rule our lives. And we find ourselves... At least in my house, at least I know for me, right, we find ourselves kind of starting to slip down this, this slope of, of burnout where exhaustion levels are high and patience levels are low when instead of controlling our calendars and our schedules, they start to control us. Here's what we do. It's easy in those moments to start pointing fingers at the various reasons and causes for all of the stress and chaos Maybe you said this, it's not, it's not my fault, right? My boss's expectations are too high. It's not my fault. Like my boss's expectations, they, 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 like that's why I have to make work a priority over these other things in my life, right? That's why I have no work-life rhythm. That's why I have no work-life balance. It's because of my boss. They expect too much of us. Or maybe it's this, maybe it's not me. It's the fact that my child is the most gifted athlete of all time. And will someday be a part of the .003% of student-athletes that play professional sports. So they have to play year-round, and they have to practice ten times a week. I have to help them achieve their dream. Or don't you mean your dream? Or maybe it's this. Don't look at me. My spouse wanted to drive the nice car. I mean, they're the ones that wanted to live in the nice neighborhood. They were, they're the ones that, that wanted to go on the nice vacations. That's why I have to pick up extra hours at work. That's why I have to grab a second shift. That's why I have to get a second job. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And when life kind of starts to come off the rails, usually in our minds, it's anyone or anything's fault but ours. It's not me. It's school. Right? It's, it's work. It's sports. It's church. Church can also be that. It's the expectations. It's, it's keeping up appearances. It's belonging to this group or that group. It's, it's doing whatever we need to do to stay in with this crowd or that crowd. Now, let me tell you this. Before you start sending me angry emails, let me just say this. Meeting or exceeding expectations at work is not a bad thing. Like getting your kids involved in sports, not a bad thing. That's our life, right? Both of our boys are, are involved in sports. You know, going on nice vacations, driving a nice car, living in, in a nice house, getting plugged in at church. None of those things are bad things. But here's what happens. When those kinds of things become the ultimate thing in our lives, when those are the things that we say, there's nothing in my life worth more than work. Or there's nothing in my life right now more important than my kid playing five different sports. That's when things become ultimate and according to the Bible, that's called idolatry, and that is a bad thing. You know, idolatry, when we begin to worship idols, it's when anything other than God sits in that place of ultimate, right? And it was kind of top on the list. How do you know, how do you know God cares about that? It's the first commandment, right? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not try to worship or make anything else ultimate but me. 
regardless of whose fault it is, it is our responsibility when it comes to doing the work. When we need to do the work, when it comes to rethinking, reworking, and realigning our values and priorities to sync up with Jesus. Let me just kind of make this make sense. I, I was thinking about this this week. I'm like, what, like how can I make this make sense in, in my own brain and maybe in the process help you make sense of this as well? About five or six years ago, Christy and I bought the house that we live in now, right? We bought it from my parents. It was my parents' house. It's the house that I grew up in. We moved into that house in 1986 when I was six years old. And so for 30 plus years, right, like that house reflected my parents, right, because they were in charge. In 2004, right, the, the, the paint colors, everything from the paint colors to the furniture to the floral wallpaper that was everywhere, that's all their vibe, right? That's all their style, the carpet. In 2004, my parents put an addition on the back of the house, and they kind of moved their lives down to, to one level, right? I was married and out of the house. My, my brother was out of the house. So they kind of consolidated their lives on one floor of this house. So in 2017, when Christy and I moved in, the upstairs in the basement really hadn't been touched since like the late 90s, which I had my, my kids ask me the other day, Dad, what was it like growing up in the 1900s? And I almost threw something at him. I'm like, come on. But it was. I mean, when you start to think about it, it's like, like this, these parts of this house hadn't been touched since, since the late 90s, and here we are in like 2017. And it wasn't our style. Like we moved into the house and, and, and things in that house, it wasn't our style. It was their style. They loved it. Great. Good for them. A little different than ours. So when it came to like the paint colors and the furniture and the flooring and things like that, our style was a lot different than their style. So we had a choice. Christy and I had a choice. We can either live in a house that reflects somebody else's style, taste, and vibe, or we can do the work and make some changes. And that's what we did. We started ripping out flooring, right? We, we took apart plumbing. We changed light fixtures. We changed paint colors. We accidentally killed about 95% of the landscaping, right? We're only about halfway done. I mean, here we are five years later, six years later, and we're only really about halfway done with all that we want to do. It's still a work in progress, but we had that choice to make. And there's two reasons why I'm telling you this story, all right? The first is this. We didn't decide to sit in a house that had someone else's look, feel, and vibe and say, like, don't look at us, not our fault. We're just stuck with this. We took the responsibility, right? We said, listen, we're going to do the work, and we're going to make the changes, that we want. And it was hard work and it took time. And it came with a cost. There was a physical cost, there was a financial cost. It's the same when it comes to our values and priorities. Here's the truth, church. We can either let someone that does not have any interest in our lives or in the lives or the health or the well being of ourselves and our families tell us what our lives should look like, or we can take some responsibility, do the work, and make some changes to care for ourselves and those connected to us. Second reason is this. Christy and I had to, to deconstruct in order to reconstruct. Right? We had to do some major demo work, but here's the key in this. We didn't just stop at deconstruction and demolition. We didn't just stop at tearing flooring out. We didn't just stop at ripping out plumbing. We didn't just stop at changing light fixtures. We didn't stop at just ripping those things out of the ceiling, right? We had to do the work of reconstruction. And it's the same when it comes to our values and priorities. Church, you and I, we cannot live in a deconstructed life. And that's the truth. And some of us this morning, we need to hear this. You cannot live in a deconstructed life. Deconstruction requires and implies doing the work of reconstruction. 
you and I, we can't simply tear down and live without values and priorities. We have to rebuild them on the truth of Scripture and in the ways of Jesus. When we started this series, I shared a verse out of Proverbs, chapter 25. It says this, a man without self-control or someone without values and priorities, someone who just stopped at deconstruction, someone who just tore things out, tore things down, but didn't rebuild, someone like that is like a city that's been broken into and left without walls. It's not safe. And that's not how we were designed to live. That's not what God wants for us. And you might be thinking, well, like, well, isn't like letting Jesus guide and shape our values and priorities still like allowing someone else to tell us how to live our lives? Yes, it is. But Jesus is different than your boss or your kid's coach. One of those three, right, Jesus, your boss, or your kid's coach, or, your, or their teacher, like one of those three conquered sin and death, the other ones didn't. So which one do you think you should listen to? The truth is this, nobody did life better than Jesus. No one did life better than Jesus. We talked about this in our study group on Wednesday nights with the men. Like we talked about Jesus was a person. Jesus was a man as God intended people to be. Jesus lived the life that God intended us to live, right? The with God life. No one did life better than Jesus. No one understands life better than Jesus. We're reading Hebrews in our men's crew on Wednesday nights, and we talked about the fact that, that Jesus is a high priest. It says this in Hebrews. Jesus is a high priest who's been tempted in every way that we've been tempted. He's experienced everything that you could pack into the human condition and yet was without sin. Jesus understands your life. There is no point when anything you're dealing with, when you pray to Jesus and go, Jesus, like, this is what I'm doing. Jesus doesn't go, yeah, I wonder what that's like. Huh? Like, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus understands. Jesus knows. He experienced the fullness of humanity. Nobody understands life better than Jesus. So why wouldn't you want to listen to him when it comes to living yours? And by letting Jesus shape our values and priorities and direct our lives, we're, we're not letting someone who's detached or not invested in our lives or in the lives of our families. Jesus is so invested in our lives that he gave his own life for ours. It doesn't get more invested than that. And then beyond that, Jesus sent his spirit to live within each one of us. So it's not like Jesus exists apart from you or Jesus doesn't understand where Jesus doesn't care. He said, I'm so invested in your life, I'll give my life for yours. And then beyond that, I'm so invested in your life, my spirit and my presence is gonna live within you. And this is really where it ties into the story that we've been talking about and unpacking over the last few weeks. In the beginning of this book called Nehemiah, we found that the walls and the gates and the homes and the temple, the, the entire city of Jerusalem had been torn down and destroyed and demolished. Well, how'd that happen? Here's how. The Bible tells us that a few hundred years prior to what we've been unpacking in Nehemiah, the kings and the rulers of Judah and Jerusalem, they turned to false gods and fake idols when it came to their values and priorities. And the one real true God, Yahweh, tried to warn them, basically says this, if you let somebody other than me set the values and priorities that lead and guide and direct your lives, you're going to get in trouble. And let me just tell you the truth, all right? A lot of times people, I think, have this picture that, like, God is just some, like, bully, 
that he's mean, that he's just, he's just waiting for the moment to, 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 to trap us, right? To, to, like we mess up, we make a mistake, and God goes, ha, gotcha. And like he delights in judgment and delights in, in pain, delights in making sure that we get what we deserve. Let me just say this. God does not have to actively punish sin. All God has to do is get out of the way, and sin will actively punish itself. That's what it does. I mean, sin is, is the tool of our enemy. Sin is the tool of Satan who deceives us, right? Sin is meant to, like, like Jesus says, the enemy comes to only steal from us, kill us, and destroy us. That's what he wants to do. Sin, which here's what sin is. It's basically looking at God and saying, God, I know you're good. I know you want good for, for me. I know, you've got, I know that what you desire for me is good. But listen, I think I can do it better than you. So why don't you move out of the way and let me do what I want? That's sin. So sin is something that ultimately at the end of the day, sin will, it'll punish itself. Sin runs itself into the ground. And all God has to do is just get out of the way. God doesn't have to actively punish sin. It will do it on its own. God is not mean. God is not mad at you. He doesn't, God doesn't wait for the opportunities to tear down our lives. Here's what he knows misaligned values and priorities in your life will do that on their own. And that's exactly what happened to Judah and Jerusalem. We read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It says this, the Lord, the God of their fathers, that's the people in Judah and Jerusalem, he sent, he sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He's going, listen, y'all, you better cut it out. You better stop looking at idols and false gods and fake idols when it comes to your values and priorities. You should come back to me. Why? Because I love you. You better cut it out. And it says this. It says, but, but they kept mocking the messengers of God and despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until, catch this, the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people until there was no remedy. Sin will run itself into the ground. All God has to do is stop pulling back on the stick. Sin will crash itself straight into the ground. All God has to do is go, all right, you want to run this? Run this. Let's see how that works out for you. So my thing is this, like, church, when are we going to wake up? One of our, I told him I'd quote him again this week, and I was kind of joking at first, but a guy in our men's group, Corey, he quoted Mike Tyson last week, and then he had another great quote this week. He said this, he said, you know, that there's, this, there's an article that he read, he said, you know, that the people, this article said this, that the people of God are no longer a problem for the rest of society. There was a time when the people of God would lead the way when it came to revolution, there was a time when the people of God would, would lead the way when it came to reawakening. There was a time where the people of God would lead the way when it came to recentering society and culture on real values and priorities. But this article said that in the last few years, in the last decade, last few decades, the people of God have ceased to be a problem for society and culture. We're a pushover. We're not a problem. We don't make noise. What do we do? We just kind of bunker in inside our little holy huddles and we just stay safe. The truth is, we should be a problem for culture and society. When their values are misaligned, when priorities are, are misaligned, when priorities begin to chase things, when values begin to chase idols, 
We talked about this on Wednesday. Like you look at some of the values and priorities in our culture right now. One of the ones is this. And, and it's, it's gotten flipped. It's, it's instead of God being love, love has become God. It's pursue love, pursue connection, pursue intimacy and sexuality in whatever way you need to do that. Because how you do it is how you do it. But it's the ultimate thing for you. So you do it however you want to do it. It becomes the thing that we pursue at all costs, no matter how much harm or damage it does to us or other people. That's when you know. Your values and priorities are misaligned. If you're hurting or you are hurting someone else, your values and priorities are not connected to Jesus. That's the truth. Same thing happened to the people back in this day. The the Babylonians, they moved in. The people weren't a problem. They couldn't put up a fight. So the Babylonians move in and they conquer Judah and Jerusalem and they destroy the city and they deport and export all of the strong and smart and healthy people to be their slaves and servants in their empire. The same things happening now in society. Things like marriage are being destroyed and people are being drug off and made slaves to other things. Sexuality is being destroyed, and people are being drug off and, and made to serve in, in, in slavery, right, to serve other things and other masters. It's happening now. And just like back in this day, we're not putting up much of a fight. Now, fast forward 150 years or so to Nehemiah's story. See, Nehemiah wasn't alive when all this happened in Second Chronicles, Nehemiah was born in captivity. He grew up in captivity. All he knew was being a slave and being a servant, right? He wasn't there when Jerusalem fell. But here's what we saw in chapter 1 in Nehemiah. We learned about, when he learned about the condition of the city and the circumstances of the people that were still living there, he said this, listen, I might not have been around back then, but I'm a part of the people that ultimately let go of the rope and started chasing different things. And so, listen, it's my fault. I know it happened 150 years ago, but I own it. And now we've got to take responsibility to put it back together. And after 140 or 150 years of people in Jerusalem living in ruin and shame, and they were defenseless, they were unable to protect themselves, all because in the past they allowed their values and priorities to be infiltrated and invaded by, by fake gods and idols that took them way off course, Nehemiah says, enough. Living in fear, living in insecurity, living in misery, that's not who we are. That's not what God wants for us. Nehemiah says this, it's time to do the work and put this back together and live the way that God desires for us to live. And we want to do the same. God does not want you and I to live in an unsafe, deconstructed life. So we're going to set out to rework and rethink our values and priorities that will help us reconstruct our lives and his church on on his truth and in the ways of Jesus. At Adventure, we have five of them. They're called our high five. Our values and priorities, they're not just for you, but they're also for me, right? They're just, they're they're for our church. They're for us personally as much as they are for us organizationally. And here's the truth. When we shift our values and priorities to align with God's truth and Jesus' life, it's not just our lives that change, but the lives around us are impacted. And so to take a fresh approach this year, we've been looking at this guy named Nehemiah, because what we see is this, in Nehemiah's character, who he was as a person, and in his story, we can see what happens when instead of just talking about our values and priorities, what happens when we activate them? What happens when we say, enough, I'm tired of not putting up a fight, I'm tired of being a pushover. I'm tired of living in defenseless and insecure life. Enough. I want to put this thing back together. 
we look at, we've seen what happens one brick at a time, right? When Nehemiah starts to rebuild this city, we see what happens when the kinds of values that are rooted in the truth from Scripture and modeled after the life of Jesus, right? We see what happens when those things get activated. And today's value is this. We join the movement. At Adventure, we want to join the movement that Jesus started a couple thousand years ago. And this value is really all about discipleship and spiritual formation. It's becoming a follower of Jesus that begins to look more like Jesus. That's what that means. And what we say is this, that Jesus, he came to start a gospel movement of multiplication through disciple making. I mean, Jesus operated in an area that's about the same distance between where we're sitting right now in Frankfort, Kentucky. You can drive it in about 35, 40 minutes. Jesus, at the end of, at the end of his ministry only really had about 100 or so dedicated followers and 12 guys in his small group. And yet here we are 2,000 years later on a completely different continent talking about him. Jesus didn't come to plant churches. Jesus didn't come to start orphanages. Jesus came to start a movement. And it worked. It succeeded. Why? Because he made disciples who could make disciples who could make disciples. So what we learn through Scripture is this, that Jesus, he commissions us, which means he says, he commands us, go. Go and make disciples, right? He equips us with his Holy Spirit to join his movement. And guess what? You can start doing that today. You don't have to wait. And so when we look at Nehemiah, here's what happens in Nehemiah chapter 3. And I set a challenge this week um, on Twitter or whatever it's called now, X, whatever it's called. Twitter, here's, here's the Nehemiah chapter 3 challenge. Record yourself reading Nehemiah chapter 3 out loud as fast as you can. We're not looking for accuracy, we're looking for speed, all right? Just go as fast as you can, as far as you can. I think Casey got the furthest and got to like verse 10. So you'll see why here in just a minute, right? It says this, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it, and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the, the Tower of the Hundred, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. So, so let me just give you some context. Prior to this, Nehemiah, he does some kind of behind-the-scenes work, does some kind of covert scouting just to see what kind of shape the, the city is in. And then he kind of puts together this punch list after he surveys the city. And in chapter 3, that's when, like, the reconstruction movement officially begins. And for you and I, when it comes to activating the value and priority of both being disciples of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus, right, joining that movement, the first brick we have to establish is this. You and I, we must own our personal piece of the movement. You got to own this. And here's what that means. If you look at me in Nehemiah chapter 3, what we just read was the priests, they were the first ones to join the reconstruction movement in Jerusalem. They were the first ones to do this. The priests were typically in charge of facilitating worship in the temple, but there was no temple. The temple had been destroyed, and it needed to be reconstructed. Notice what the priests didn't say. They didn't say, hey, the temple's been destroyed. Lord, please send us someone to rebuild the temple. That's not what they said. They just started rebuilding the temple. One brick at a time. One piece at a time. The priests owned their part of the movement. They took responsibility for, for what was theirs. And they just got to work. I heard one pastor say that the temple in Jerusalem functioned structurally in the city, kind of like the spine. It held everything up. I mean, the city was kind of built in, built on, and built out of the temple. But beyond that, it also functioned spiritually as the heart, the spiritual heart of the culture. It was the source of spiritual life and health. Now, I think 
a lot of us, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus, our approach sometimes kind of is like Dorothy at the end of The Wizard of Oz. Like if I show up at church and I click my heels three times and I just say, Jesus, make me a disciple, Jesus, make me a disciple, then maybe it'll happen. And we expect the magic download to begin to to start. And after about 15 minutes of waiting with our eyes closed, hopeful, right, we get disappointed and we bail out. Why? Because nothing changed. It's like, but I said all the words. I prayed all the prayers. Jesus, make me a disciple. Like, I don't understand why after 15 minutes I don't have the entire New Testament memorized. I thought this would work. Can I just tell you that is not owning your piece of the movement. Dallas Willard, who I love, once said this, that that grace stands opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. It means this, you can't earn the opportunity to be Jesus' disciple. You and I cannot be good enough, smart enough, rich enough, pretty enough, handsome enough. We can't be enough to be one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus invites us into that, right? Being a disciple of Jesus is a gift that's offered by Jesus. But once you are a disciple of Jesus, you can work at it. You can train and you can get stronger. Well, what does that look like, Brad? What does it look like for me to take this thing personal? Like, what does it look like for me to have, you know, some responsibility to do the work in being a disciple? Think about it like this. Think about the priests rebuilding the temple. Brick by brick, one piece at a time. See, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we are now the temple of God. You and I are where the presence of God lives. God does not live in a building. He lives in us. So let me ask you this question. What kind of shape is the temple in? What kind of shape is the temple in in your life? What are you doing right now to make sure that it's solid? What are you doing to make sure that it's shored up and strengthened? I can tell you this much. The temple does not get rebuilt. The temple does not get strengthened by only working on it one hour a week. I checked my box, showed up on Sunday, did my work, good. Temple's strong. Nope. Discipleship is a daily responsibility. Doing the work of discipleship, right? Strengthening that temple, right, in us. Looks like picking up your Bible and reading it. And if you're looking for a place to start, when it comes to discipleship, here's a great place to start. The book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, read chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches to a crowd of people, but really who he's talking to are are his, his small group of guys, You want to know what it means to be a disciple? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's what it means to be a disciple. And here's the thing. Reading the Bible, it's it's really not that complicated. I know for some some of us, we read this book and it's like, man, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what some of these words mean. Again, read Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to get into more of it here in just a second. Like some of the names are crazy. How do you pronounce this stuff? Can I just tell you this? Here's the thing. When we read scripture, ask yourself two questions. That's all you have to do. Ask yourself two questions. What does this say, and what am I going to do about it? Like, what is this saying? You read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's your challenge this week. Go home and read Matthew 5, 6, or 7. It's pretty clear what Jesus has to say. Jesus doesn't really, like, beat around the bush. Jesus kind of, he doesn't pull punches. He just tells the truth. So ask that second question. What am I going to do about it? And that's where, like, we really see the friction, right? So what am I going to do about it? Ah, I really don't want to do this. Maybe Jesus didn't really mean it when he said, no, he did. 
What does this say? What am I going to do about it? Strengthening that temple means setting aside time in your day to pray. To have a conversation with God. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be flowery words. It doesn't have to be, like, it's just simple. I say a prayer every morning before my feet hit the floor. It says, Jesus, help me to trust you more today than I did yesterday. That's it. Maybe for some of us, it's jumping into one of these study groups like we have on Wednesday nights, right? Or, or into one of the life groups that are going to start rolling here in, in a few weeks. But, but here's the deal. If your temple is a mess, stop waiting for someone else to come put it back together. Do the work. Take some responsibility. There's an old hymn written by a guy named James Gray. It's only four lines long. It says this, Oh, Lord, send revival. Lord, send a revival. Oh, Lord, send a revival. And let it begin in me. If you want to see a restoration movement, if you want to see a renovation movement within yourself, within your family, within our church, within our city, within our country, you've got to step up and you have to start making discipleship in your life a value and a priority. You and I cannot be a part of a disciple-making movement without first taking the responsibility for our own discipleship. So that's the first brick. Take some responsibility. Own your part of the movement. Own what you're responsible for. Well, what is that? It's me. It's my family. It's those connected to me. That's what I'm responsible for. The second brick is this. The gospel must do work in us before it does work through us. Kind of sticking with our priests, right? We're just one or two verses in. The first thing that the priests rebuild, this is fascinating. Kind of blew my mind this week. The first thing that the priests rebuild is the sheep gate. And here's why this matters. The priests would have remembered, right, they would have understood that before Jerusalem was destroyed, the sheep gate is where they would bring in the lambs that would be sacrificed to cover the sins of all the people. That's where they would bring the sheep in. That's where they would bring the lambs in. I read a commentary that said this, to, to bring in the sheep through the sheep gate was, was to be reminded and to admit that you were guilty of sin, that you needed the blood of the lamb to cover your sin. It's no accident that the first gate that gets rebuilt is the one that reminds them and all the people how much they need God's love, grace, and mercy in their lives. In addition to this, after they would sacrifice the lambs back in the day, they would then kind of grill them up and have a feast. The same commentary said this, that with their, when their sins were forgiven, the people of God could share the feast with family, foreigners, and strangers. Because they'd been forgiven, they could now commune with God, and they were free to commune with others. The gospel had to do work in them before the gospel could do work through them. Now, we all know the Christmas story, right? Away in a manger, Jesus was born in a barn, right? Born in a cave in Bethlehem. And when he was born, they put him in like a feeding trough. Did you know that the lambs that were raised specifically for the sacrifices in Jerusalem to cover the sins of the people were born in Bethlehem? And that when that lamb was born, if it was a spotless lamb, they would take that lamb and they would put it in a feeding trough to, to basically they would know this lamb is, is a lamb that one day will be used to take away the sins of the people. Do you know, Jesus, we celebrate Easter. You know, Jesus rode in. We celebrate Palm Sunday, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king. And everybody says, Hosanna, Hosanna, you're awesome, you're amazing. You know the gate Jesus rode in on? The gate that he entered Jerusalem? The sheep gate. The gate that was meant to remind people how much they need God's grace and mercy. Every Sunday in this place, we take communion. Why? To remember 
the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. Jesus is our reminder that everything that has needed or needs to be done has been done so that we can step into a different way of living, the with God life, right? The gospel has to do daily work within us before it will do work through us. And that means that we have to admit that we are guilty of sin. And it's only because of Jesus that new life is possible. You can't do it on your own. Church, there is no such thing as a disciple of Jesus that didn't need to be first forgiven and made new, be made new by Jesus. And there's no other way to do it. Jesus says in John 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, here's the deal, church. Once you and I get into the rhythm of daily letting the gospel do work within us, which means this. When you accepted Jesus, when you trusted Jesus with your life and maybe you got baptized, that wasn't the finish line. It's like, well, yep, I'm done. I trusted Jesus, got baptized. Like my eternal security, like, like retirement plan is I got my, my, my get out of hell free card, my fire insurance. I'm good. That's not, the, that's not the finish line. That's the starting line. And the gospel has to do work within us daily, daily renovating who we are. And once we get into that place where daily we look at Jesus and go, if it weren't for you, I would be sunk. That's when the gospel will begin to do work through us. We have to get in that daily rhythm. Let's pick back up in Nehemiah verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. It says, next to the priests, right, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built, and, and the sons of, here you go, Hassaniah, right? They built the fish gate and laid its beams on and set its doors. You've got to go fast. It's bolts and it's bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulalem, right? We'll go with that. The son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, he repaired. And next to them, the son of Zadok and the sons of Baneah, they repaired, right? Chapter 3, go fast. As you read through the rest of chapter 3, which I'm not going to do, it goes like this. And next to this person was this person. And next to that person were those people. And next to them were these people. And on down the line and all down the line. It starts with the priests. One verse ago, the priests kind of hop in. They take ownership, right? And then everyone kind of joins in. And So here's our next brick. Here's our next takeaway. Doing the work of discipleship is a team sport. I read a quote one time that says this. The church is not built on the gifts of the few, but on the sacrifices of the many. That's why we do things like say yes. Say yes is not so we can have, you know, more people giving. It's not so we can have more bodies in rooms or more volunteers. It's not for us to meet metrics, right? Say yes is this. We just want to get you involved in the kingdom. And that's part of our job as a church is to create opportunities for you to get involved in the kingdom. Because here's the deal. If you want to volunteer in kids ministry, if you can lead a second grader, if you could talk to a second grader about Jesus, you could talk to anyone about Jesus. We just want to get you involved. You look at our story here, it all began with God stirring in Nehemiah while he was living. Nehemiah was living a pretty cushy life, right? He's, he's a servant of the king. He's in a position of influence and status. He's living in the palace. And, and what happened is God comes to Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes ownership of his part of the movement. He prays. He fasted. He sought God's desires for his life. And what Nehemiah did was he left the comfort and security of the palace to come to a dangerous city to do some dangerous work. And now the work that God started in one man is now being done and shared by many people. And the result is this, a city and a community is starting to look different. But I want us to pay attention to a couple of things here. If you read in verse 12, these two people, right? 
This person who was the ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, it says this. This person repaired Shalom. This person repaired him and his daughters. Here's what this means. Anybody can play. I mean, if, if, there's, if you want more evidence, like there's evidence all over the place. I know this is the debate within Christian communities. If you want more evidence that women can be involved in the construction and leadership of the church, boom, there it is. Just one more, add it to the pile. A lot of people ask us, like, Brad, why does, like, how'd you get to the place where adventure, where you ordain women? I'm like, well, we just read the Bible. That's how. Verse 14, it says this, that again, we have kind of a rich ruler, right? That he was the ruler of an entire district. This guy repaired the dung gate, and he rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. You have a ruler. You have someone in the city who is of high society. He had power. He had status. He had influence, but he was willing to rebuild the poop gate. This was essentially like the septic tank, right? It's like where everything went. It's like it moved all of that stuff outside of the city so the city didn't stink. Someone who is in high influence and high status, right? Here's our takeaway from this, right? He had status. He had power, but he also had humility. I'm willing to do the work that nobody wants to do. I'm willing to do the hardest job or the worst job or the stinkiest job, and I'm not too good for that. And then the last verse, let's look at verse 32, kind of as the chapter closes out. It says this, And between the upper chamber and the corners of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants, which means this, the perfumers, those who sold, who sold perfume, they repaired. When it comes to this discipleship movement, it takes all kinds of gifts. Like we talked about with Sean, a dude who's willing to work the grill. Yeah, I'll, I'll cook food for families at an event. Yeah, I'll do that takes all kinds of gifts. The goldsmiths and the perfumers, when they looked at the people rebuilding the gifts, like, ah, we don't do that. They didn't say that. They said, all right, what, what can we do? I don't need you to sell perfume right now. I need you to rebuild a wall. Okay, done. There's really not a whole lot of use for gold in this set. It's like, could you, re got it. Takes all kinds. Takes all kinds of gifts. Everybody can play. Requires humility. And takes all kinds of gifts. Nobody gets left out. One of my mentors, a guy named Dan Spader, said this. If you first try to build or make a church, you may or may not get disciples. But if you first, you seek to build and make disciples, you'll always get a church. God wasn't working through Nehemiah to only restore and rebuild a wall. God was restoring and rebuilding and reviving his people. You can see that God doesn't just want to rebuild a select few. God opens the door for everybody to get in on it. And it just so happens that a wall and a city re get rebuilt in the process. God's not looking to rebuild structures. He's, re he's looking to rebuild someone. And by rebuilding someone, he, what he knows is this. Yeah, the things, the wall will get, the wall will take care of itself. I just want to rebuild you. Sharing in the work of discipleship is not designed to grow a church or an organization in order to bring about change. Discipleship and Jesus is designed to grow people who together form a movement that causes change in a community. That's the point. So let's land the plane, all right? In order for you and I to activate this value, in order for you and I to make 
make a, a priority, right? A value and a priority of, of being disciples and joining Jesus' disciple-making movement. Here's just a recap, right? Number one, we've got to own it, and we've got to take responsibility for it. We've got to make this, that we have to own the personal piece of the movement, right? Which means this, you can't be a part of a disciple-making movement without first taking the responsibility of being a disciple yourself. So, well, I want to make disciples. Great. First, start with being a disciple. I don't want to do that. If you want to make disciples, you have to be one. Second, we have to let the gospel do work in us before it will do work through us. There's no such thing as a disciple or a disciple maker of Jesus that didn't need to first be forgiven by Jesus and be made new by Jesus. And the last thing, doing the work of discipleship is a team sport. We share in this work. We share in the work of discipleship, and it's not designed to grow a church. It's designed to grow people and start a movement. So I was trying to figure out a way to kind of end today. And it just so happens, last week I got a chance to catch up with Mark and Yumiko Lease. Uh, they're actually going to be here at church on, Sunday, on, on Wednesday, which I'm really excited about. But Mark and Yumiko are our mission partners. They live and work and do mission work in Japan. And in Japan, only one out of every 200 people is even open to the idea of Jesus. This is not like one out of every 200 is a believer of Jesus. It's one out of 200 people are open to the idea of Jesus. The other 199 are like, nope, not interested. And they've been working there. They've been living there. They've been doing mission work there for 32 years. When I talked to Mark on the phone, he said this. He said, Brad, the, the last year has been the most fruitful year of mission and ministry that we've seen in the last 32. We've never seen anything like this. So Mark, tell me a little bit more about like what's going on. He said, well, you know, one of the things that he started doing, Mark teaches English at, at a local college, and what he does is he invites kids to come to church, right? Like, hey, if you want to join us on Sunday, you can join us on Sunday. Mark said 50 of the 65 students that he has in class have started coming to his church. He said that, that former students that have graduated, he's talked about one dude who's a banker, who's a believer in Jesus, have started bringing their friends to church, bringing their neighbors to church, bringing their coworkers to church. Mark was, was reading, he, he, one of his neighbors wanted to learn English, and so Mark said, all right, what we're going to do that is we're going to read the Bible together. That's a great way for us to do this. We'll read the Bible. That'll help you, that'll help you learn English. And, and Mark says, listen, here's what happened. Like, he, he went through the English class, right? He learned the English, but then he kept, he kept coming back. And Mark's like, hey, we're done with class. He goes, I know. I just want to learn more about Jesus. He said that, that three of the young women that his wife Yumiko works with have recently become believers in a short amount of time. And here's why I love this story. Because they've been over there for 32 years. They've been planting seeds, they've been tilling up soil, they've been removing rocks from that soil, they've been ripping weeds out of that soil, right, to plant the seed of the gospel. It's taken them 32 years to get to a place where now they're starting to see fruit. Some of us won't give one hour a week to a group and they've given 32 years of their life and now they're starting to see the fruit. It takes time. It took Jesus three years to make disciples of his small group, right? Why do we think we can do it any faster than that? Jesus is pretty good at making disciples. It takes time. It takes investment. If this was not a value or a priority in Mark and Yumiko's life, they would have quit a long time ago. And I'm telling you, if, if right now in our church, 
if this is something that we go, yeah, Brad, we're good with everything. We're good with all the values, but we're not quite sure about this whole disciple and discipleship thing. We don't want to do that. Here's what we need to do. Close all this up. Pack all this stuff up. Let me quit. I'll go get a corporate job, right? Like, and we'll just pack it up. We'll just, this will go back to being a warehouse or, you know, back to being an ad agency. It'll go back to that. We'll just do that. If you don't want to make disciples, you don't want to be a part of a movement, go to a different church. And if that's not who we want to be, then let's just fold it up now. That's who Jesus desires us to be. The one thing Jesus commanded was this. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. To do that, we have to be a disciple. We have to trust the gospel. We got to get others involved. And we have to get involved ourselves. There are kids and students in this place that need someone to be a disciple maker to them. Would you do that? There are opportunities to serve and volunteer in this place that will lead people into disciple-making relationship with Jesus. Would you do that? There are groups that are praying for people to sit in the seats around tables or in living rooms around the, around the city. Would you be a part of that? Take some responsibility. The temple is not going to rebuild itself, and it doesn't get rebuilt working on it one hour a week. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship. If today, if you want to trust Jesus, I'd love to meet you down front. We can talk about what that looks like. If today you want to join this church, you want to be a part of this church, you want to join the movement, we can talk about that as well. I would love to chat with you about that. If you need time to just to, to pray on your own, you can do that. I'd love to pray for you down front, but you can also stand in front of this cross or sit in front of this cross and spend some time with Jesus if you want to do that. But church, it's time. It's time for us to become a problem for culture and society that pushes back against the values and, the, and the, the priorities of Jesus. It's time for us to take a stand. We're not perfect, but we're making progress. We're not perfect, but we're people in process. And this is what truth looks like. This is what grace looks like. This is what mercy looks like. This is what Jesus wants for us. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna worship together. Jesus, we love you. We pray today that, Lord, we would take this, this idea of discipleship, we would take it personal, that we would know that, it, that it's, this doesn't just happen on its own. It's not osmosis or diffusion, right? It's, it's the work. we got to do the work. But we've been forgiven so that we can do that. We don't have to do this with the weight of sin or, or fear of death on our shoulders. We can do this without the weight of sin, without the fear of death. Why? Because you have conquered both of those things. So Jesus, today I pray that we would take, hey, we, we got nothing left to lose kind of attitude. That we would begin to, the same ways that you did, through serving people, through helping people, through healing people, through speaking the truth to people, through forgiving people, Lord, that we would make a stand in our community and in our culture. Jesus, I pray for groups to grow. I pray for, for men and women to be discipled. I pray for homes to change. I pray for conversations around dinner. I pray for prayers at bedtime, whatever it looks like, that the Bible would be open in homes, that you would be discussed and, and talked about, that you would become the thing our lives revolve around. Not money, not success, not power, not influence, not having nice stuff, not being on a, on a, going on a nice vacation. But you would be the thing that exists at the center of our lives. I pray all this in your name. Amen.
you stand and sing with us.